our children, all of the kids to Kids Church this morning. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. As I was preparing this morning, uh, or for this morning's message, uh, it was it was a very bittersweet uh, time for me because I'm I'm preparing for this message and as we get into you know Jesus has made his way into the garden this morning uh, and and we're gonna we're gonna talk about the the prayer of Christ not my will but your will be done uh, and so this week uh, I knew that our team would be leaving to go to India on Friday and I knew that I would not be on the plane I knew that uh, that the nation of India saw fit to deny my visa yet again. And so, you know, I was, was forced by the Spirit of God to, to, to pray this very prayer. You know, not, not my will, but your will be done. And so this morning, long before I even have preached this message, uh, the Holy Spirit has preached it to my own heart. Uh, and so this is, this is, a, uh, this is a particularly... Uh, personal and difficult message for me this morning. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 26, we're going to read verses 36 through 46. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face, prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed. He's saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we have this picture of Jesus' humanity mingled beautifully with his divine nature. Lord, may you strengthen us. May you encourage us as we read your word this morning. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, I pray that as you leave this place today that, that you will delight yourself in the will of God. As we look at Scripture, one of the biggest questions, one of the biggest conundrums 
all throughout Scripture is, is man's attempt to discern the will of God. What, what is it that, that God would want for my life? What is it that, that God would reveal in His Word? What is His will for my life? And I want us to understand that Jesus Himself, the Son of God, God the Son, that He experienced this same question. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup, yet not my will, but your will be done. Now, I don't think that Jesus was unaware of the will of God, but I think that, that there was an aspect, especially within the humanity of Jesus, where, where he wrestled with the will of God. And so I want us to understand that this passage is probably the, the, single, most passage, the, the, the single passage in Scripture where we see the, the, the beauty of the duality of Jesus' nature, that he was fully God and yet he was fully man. That, that we see the humanity of Jesus saying, I don't want to take these next few steps that, that, that you have ordained before the foundation of the earth for me to take. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to experience the separation from a holy God because I am the embodiment of sin. I don't want to experience what I am about to experience, and yet there is the divine nature, yet I must fulfill the promise. I must fulfill the ordination before the foundation of time. And so we, we see this duality here. But I want us to notice, and, and, and we're going to focus primarily on Jesus' prayer. We're going to touch on different aspects here in the garden, but we're going to focus primarily on Jesus' prayer. And I want us to note, I want us to understand that Jesus' prayer is twofold. He prays two things. There's a, a, a two different independent clauses in this prayer. He says, let this cup pass from me, Yet, not my will, but your will be done. There are two aspects of the prayer of Christ. And so I want us to look, first of all, at the, at the, the first statement of Jesus. That Jesus says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In our lives, there are things that we go through, things that we endure, things that we've been, some of it by our own uh, by our own cause and, and because of our own poor choices and our own poor decisions, but, but some of it not. Some of it is thrust upon us. Some of us uh, have, have disease, death, uh, uh, hardships that, that, that are just part of life because we live in a fallen world. And I want us to understand that whenever the author of Hebrews says we do not have a high priest who cannot identify with us because he's been tempted in every way that we are, that Jesus, the Lord of glory, that Jesus experienced this, this humanity. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to experience what is about to happen. I don't want... He's staring down the barrel of the of the divine ordination of God. He's been talking about it with his disciples for the past three years. He's saying, he's saying my time is coming. My, there's coming a point in time whenever the Son of Man must suffer and whenever the Son of Man must die. There's coming a point in time whenever the Son of Man must be offered up, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Jesus knows what's coming. And now his hour is at hand, and he is staring down the barrel. And I want us to understand that Jesus is not cowering before Roman guards. 
I want us to understand, church, that Jesus is not fearful before what the Romans and Pilate is about to do. Is about, he's not standing there cowering before what Pilate's about to do to him. All throughout human history, we have seen countless testimony of countless testimony of men who have gone to the death who have literally had their skin peeled from their body, and as they do, they proclaim, To God be the glory. Greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. As Stephen was stoned to death, he looked and, 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 and he began to praise God because of the, the persecution that he was enduring. There is countless story after countless story. As Polycarp, the disciple of John, was being burnt at the stake and they pierced him and the blood that, that, that flowed out of him ex- extinguished the flames that were underneath him and the lower half of his body was charred beyond belief and, and Polycarp said, their flames cannot quench the power and the Spirit of God. He began to praise God. I want us to understand that, that these martyrs that, that died for the cause of Christ were not more brave and were not more strong than Christ because I want us to understand that Jesus is not cowering before Roman officials here. He's not cowering before what is going to happen. I want us to understand that Jesus is staring down not what Rome and not what Pilate and not what these centurions are going to do to him, but Jesus is staring down the divine wrath of God. There is a distinct difference between what man can do to us and the divine wrath of God. And as Jesus is in the garden, he is not fearful before Rome. But he is looking, anticipating the divine wrath of God. And he knows that when he hangs upon that cross, that God is going to impute upon him, that God is going to place upon Christ all of the sin of mankind. And as God places the sin of man upon Christ, the divine wrath of God is going to be poured out upon Christ. And Jesus understands exactly what that means. Jesus is not, he is not fearful because of the physical anguish that he's anticipating. While it indeed was great, Rome was, was, was very good at what they did. They knew how to inflict pain. They knew how to take the spikes and drive it through the wrist and through the instep of the foot. They knew how to flog him beyond, beyond human recognition to expose all of his, his flesh. And, and he, he was, he was don't, don't misunderstand that aspect, that Jesus indeed suffered greatly physically. But as Jesus was looking forward, as Jesus was anticipating the cross, it was not the physical language that he that he was fearful. But the scripture tells us that for the very first time in all of history, that Jesus would be separated from the Father. From eternity past to eternity future, Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit had experienced perfect harmony and perfect communion. The scripture tells us in, in Genesis that, that the, the Trinity of God, that it was 
that the Godhead experienced perfect harmony and perfect unity from eternity past and will till eternity future. From everlasting to everlasting, God has been completely satisfied and completely content and completely fulfilled in Himself. Yet, Jesus understands that when the sin of the world is placed upon Christ, when the sin of the world is imputed upon Christ, that God will pour out His wrath and Christ will, for the very first time in all of history, be separated from God. And I believe that that is what Jesus was fearful of. He never experienced it. He did not know what it meant to be separated from the love and from the grace and from the mercy and from the the providence. He did not know what it meant to be separated from God. He did not know what it meant to experience the absence of love and compassion and comfort that is provided by the Heavenly Father. And we see a glimpse into the humanity of Jesus. Yet, we see Jesus respond divinely. Luke chapter 22 verse 44 tells us that as Jesus is in anguish over this, that he began to pray so fervently that his sweat became as drops of blood. That he was so grieved and so deeply in sorrow that, that, that he began to pray and as he did so, that his sweat became as blood. And this wasn't, this isn't Luke using a metaphor saying that, that it was like blood. I believe that as Jesus was sweating and as he was praying and as he was crying and as he was grieving, that blood began to emanate from his pores because he was in such deep anguish. Church, I want us to understand, and it's important here to note, if you look at the text, if you look at Matthew chapter 26, there is, there is, a, there is language here that tells us that Jesus isn't just sad. Go back to Matthew chapter 26. I want us to look at verse 38. He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Jesus was deeply sorrowful. The, the, the language is that there was soul sorrow. It's not just that he was sad. It's not just that he was having a bad day. It's not that he got bad news. It's not that, 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 that he found out that he wasn't going to be able to, uh, to participate in, in something that he had been looking forward to. No, Jesus was deeply grieved here. And I want us to understand that Jesus was a man of sorrows. Go to Isaiah chapter 53. We see as, as the author of Isaiah writes, he says that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. What this tells us, church, is that Jesus, the King of glory, God in the flesh, experienced and suffered depression. Do you hear what I'm saying? The scripture tells us over and over again, we see it all throughout the New Testament, Jesus being deeply grieved as Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he tops the Mount of Olives and he looks over at Israel. The scripture says that he wept over Israel. Why? 
Because he was deep, his soul was deeply grieved. We live in a world today that tells us that if we suffer depression, if we experience depression, that that, that, that is somehow demonic, that, that, that we're not trusting in God. And you know what? If you're depressed, you, the, the answer to being depressed is just stop. Just, just don't be depressed. Oh, okay. If I am deeply grieved, if, if, if I've experienced loss, if I've experienced pain beyond all comprehension, and my, my, my child has died, or my spouse has died, or, or, or there is some, some deep heart, that there's a heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching loss that I'm experienced, then I'm just supposed to not be sad? Okay. The Scripture tells us that all throughout Scripture, that godly men and godly women suffered depression. Why? Because this world is broken and fallen, and we are living in the consequences of a fallen, broken world where disease, death, destruction ravages God's creation. You say, well, preacher, I, I, don't, I don't know if I buy that. Go to Psalm chapter 6. Man after God's own heart. A man who had been given everything. David. David was a man who had been anointed by God. He was was a nothing. He was a nobody. He was a shepherd. And God calls him out of shepherding. And God anoints him as king. And God gives him money and power and influence And during the Davidic reign of Israel, Israel prospers beyond all belief. And and they they destroy their enemies and they capture land. And and there there is God's providence and God's grace. And the scripture tells us that David is a man after God's own heart. He had everything going for him. And listen to what he writes in Psalm chapter 6. O Lord, do not rebuke the anger in me, nor chasten me in thy wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Hear me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. My soul is greatly dismayed. But thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. There is no mention of of thee in death. In Sheol thou will give me thanks. Listen to verse 6. I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bread swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief and it has become old because of all my adversaries. Does this sound like a man who's excited because everything's going right in his life? No. David said, My bed is drowning with tears. Yet, God had given him money, power, influence. God had called him a man after my own heart. And even in the midst of his sin and his adultery, God would bless him with a son whose name would be Solomon, which literally means blessed by God. So even on the other side of his failure, on the other side of his adultery, God blesses him and God God expounds his kingdom. Yet David said, my bed is drowning with tears. Church, depression, sadness, sorrow, and grief 
is not sin. It is a result of sin. Not necessarily your sin, but the fallen, broken world that we live in. It's okay to be riddled with grief and sadness. In fact, God tells us, God, he, he begs us to pour our heart out to Him. He begs us to bring our hurts, our pains, and our sorrows because He cares for us. If your children are deeply sad and grieving and mourning, do you not want them to come to you? Do you not want them to, to curl up in your arms and cry and tell you what's going on in their life? And tell you why they are so they are so broken. And when they do, is your response, well, don't worry about it, it's no big deal? No. You love them. You care for them. You wrap your arms around them and you try and do whatever you possibly can to show them that you care about them and to make it better. And if we as as sinful men, if we respond to our children like that, how much more would our God, our Heavenly Father, want us to bring our hurts, our pains, our cries, our fears before Him? Jesus cries out to God saying, God, I am a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Don't let this happen. He cries out to God. And does God rebuke him for it? Does God say, Jesus, you signed up for this. You knew this was coming. What nerve do you have to come to me now and gripe and complain because you don't want it to happen? No. I believe that God the Father ministered to Jesus. He comforted him. He loved him. Yet we see Jesus' response. Not my will, but your will be done. You know, all things are possible. Jesus is praying to an omnipotent God. Jesus is praying to a God whom he has prayed to before and seen the power of God. Remember, this is the same man who took five loaves of bread and two fish and said, God, I thank you for this food and then broke it and created enough food to feed 5,000. This is the same man who prayed to the Lord and stood up on the bow of a boat in the midst of a raging sea and a raging storm and said, peace be still. This is the same God who stood at the grave of La- the same person who stood at the grave of Lazarus and prayed to God and then called a dead man out of the grave. Jesus understood that the God that he was praying to had all authority and could let this cup pass. Yet, Jesus' prayer was, not my human will, not what I want in my humanity, but according to your divine will. All things are possible, but not all things are part of God's divine plan. And we need to understand that, church. A little over two years ago, I buried my dad. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. God, you would do something. 
you would intervene. You would heal my dad. You would, you would allow there to be some miracle drug. And I prayed and I beseeched the Lord. And I begged and I cried. And I buried my dad. Did God not have the authority? He absolutely did. We have to understand that while all things are possible, that not all things are part of God's divine plan. And we have to understand that sometimes, sometimes God needs Joseph in Pharaoh's prison. That sometimes God needs Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. That sometimes God needs Queen Esther sitting under the reign of Artaxerxes in Persia. That God needs someone to suffer for the cause of His great kingdom because His plans and His divine nature and His divine providence is bigger than us. Amen? I wanted nothing more than to go to India. And I begged and pleaded with God. And I spent hundreds and thousands of dollars trying to get it accomplished. And God said, it's not about you, preacher. Something bigger is going on. Not my will, but your will be done. Let's go back to the text, Matthew chapter 26. I want us to notice that as Jesus is praying, he goes back to the disciples and he shows up. And after he goes a little bit further, the scripture tells us that he goes back, he prays, Father, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will be done, not my will, but your will be done. And he goes back and he finds the disciples what? He finds them sleeping. He had told them, stay, pray. He goes back and he finds them sleeping. He says, guys, you've got to be vigilant. You've got to be aware. You've got to to pray because the hour of temptation is at hand. He goes away again. He comes back. And what does he find? He finds them sleeping. He goes away again. He prays. He comes back a third time and he finds them what? Sleeping. Now, let me call your attention back to Matthew chapter 26, verse 33 and 35. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, Peter answered and said to him, Even though all will fall away, what does Peter say? I will never fall away. And look at verse 35. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. And so now, the very same man who said, I will never deny you, I will never fall away, Jesus has said, Be vigilant, be prayerful, something is going to happen. And you've just said, I will never fall away. And yet, how many times does Jesus come back and find the very one who is boasting about his allegiance and his faithfulness to God? Who is there? Peter, James, and John. And who has fallen asleep three times? Peter, James, and John. As well as all the other disciples. In light of recent boastings and recent prideful articulations jesus finds the disciples failing he finds the disciples stumbling he finds the disciples sleeping this threefold failure is i believe two things i believe it is a foreshadowing of peter's denial of christ and i believe that it is a demonstration 
of the disciples' complete failure. Anytime in the Bible we see the word, or we see the number three, it is always to communicate complete. Jesus was in the grave for three days, demonstrating that Jesus was completely dead and that he was completely separated from the Father. Jonah was in the whale of the fish for three days, demonstrating that the, it, the, the number three is the number for completion. The number three is the number for perfection or completion. And so anytime we see the number three in the Bible, it is symbolically communicating to us completion. And so as Jesus comes back to the disciples, three times he finds them, he finds them asleep. All three times he is demonstrating, and the, the scripture and the author is demonstrating to us that for the disciples... And for Jesus' command and Jesus' uh, instructions that they have completely failed. Yet, in their complete failure, what do we find? Complete grace and forgiveness. Even in their failure, even in their failure, we see Christ completely loving them. Jesus knows our failures and he loves us anyway. Didn't Jesus just tell Peter and the disciples, you will all be scattered. You will all leave me. And they said, we will never do that. And just moments later, what did they do? They failed him. And now in just a few moments after that, They're going to fail him again, and they're going to fail him again, and they're going to fail him again, and again, and again, and again, they're going to fail. Why? Because they're human. Church, we must understand that God does not expect from us perfection. God expects from us failure. But what does he also expect from us? He expects from us complete and utter forgiveness. As Jesus hangs on the cross, as the nails are driven in, what does he say? Father, forgive them. I knew they would fail. I knew they would drive these nails. I knew the disciples would scatter. Father, forgive them. What's interesting is as people, we've been forgiven, yet oftentimes We are slow to forgive. Jesus prays, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And God answers Jesus very plainly and very clearly. He says no. Look at the text, Matthew chapter 26, verse 42. Jesus has given, Jesus has received his answer. He went away again a second time and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it. Jesus has answered him. He spent an hour in prayer with God, begging God, pleading with God, Is there any other way? And God answered very plainly, very clearly. He said, No. Church, I want you to hear this. Sometimes holy, righteous prayers are answered with no. 
Jesus was God in the flesh, and he prayed to God. There was not another person who ever walked the face of the earth that had a more righteous request. There was not another person who who completely lived and embodied the glory of God. There was not a person to walk the face of the earth that had enough faith other than Christ. And Jesus prayed and God said what? No. I've heard pastors and teachers and preachers stand up and say that the reason God doesn't heal or the reason God doesn't move is because you don't have enough faith. And I'm telling you right now that that is a lie. Because Jesus had more faith than any other person that's ever walked the face of the planet. And when Jesus asked God, God said no. And if God told Jesus no, there are going to be times when he tells us no. I love my kids. I tell them no all the time. God loves me infinitely more than I love my kids. And sometimes he says no. Sometimes God says no, and it's okay. It doesn't threaten the providence and the goodness and the graciousness of our God. When God says no to our request, it doesn't mean that He doesn't love us. In fact, it is proof that He loves us even that much more. That He says, I know you are praying for this, but in my wisdom and in my great grace and in my great sovereignty, I know what's better for you. And so I am not going to tell you yes here because I want to tell you yes in the glory. God's divine plan is better than anything that we could possibly fathom. And so here's the question I have for us, church. Are we willing to pray the second part of Jesus' prayer? God, not my will, but your will be done. Are we willing to say, God, I want this with everything that I am, yet not my will, but your will be done? Are we willing to accept no, understanding that God's divine plan is better? Are we willing to sit in Pharaoh's prison, understanding that God's divine plan is better? Are we willing to sit under a wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar, understanding that God's divine plan and God's divine will is better? Are we willing to sit in Persia for such a time as this? Because God's divine plan is better. Second Corinthians chapter 12, we'll close with this. The Apostle Paul prayed a very similar prayer to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Verse 8, concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. How many, how many times did Jesus go to the Lord? Three times. Paul shows up. He said, God, let this, let this thorn be removed from me. Over and over again, Paul prayed. And look at verse 9. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. God said, No. I'm not going to remove this from you. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you grace. So that you may have the strength to endure. The same thing God said to Jesus. Jesus. 
I am not taking this from you. But what I am going to do, I'm going to give you grace so that you may endure. Is the circumstance and the situation that you're going through, is it possibly an opportunity for God to demonstrate His grace in your life? Maybe God wants to use you as an example to others. Maybe God wants to use you on the other side of your trial, on the other side of your affliction, for His testimony of His grace. Are you willing to pray, not my will, but your will be done? But God, I don't want to go through this. Yet not my will, but your will be done. I don't want to be a testimony of grace. I imagine that there were many martyrs who sat in a prison cell and said, God, I don't, I just want to go home. I don't want to be a testimony of your grace. I just want to hug my babies and love my wife. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. Are you willing to pray that second prayer of Christ and allow Him, allow God to use you as a testimony for His divine will? Let's pray.